This morning's talk is called uh, From Place to Ground and it will be a reflection on the Buddha's uh, own account or one of his own accounts of what he woke up to or what his awakening consisted of. I'm going to start though by looking at a passage that we find in the Vinaya. Vinaya means the, the rule, the discipline, the text that concern how the monks should live. But in fact, the Vinaya is not just rules and regulations for monks. It also includes numerous stories, some of which also appear in the, in the discourses but of course often stories that concern what goes on in the monastic communities at the Buddha's time. Now at that time, the text says, a certain monk was suffering from dysentery. He lay fallen in his own excrements. Then the Buddha, as he was touring the lodgings with his attendant Ananda, approached that monk's dwelling place and spoke to him. What is your disease, monk? Lord, I have dysentery. But have you no one to tend you? No. But why do the monks not tend to you? Because I am of no use to the monks, Lord, therefore the monks do not tend to me. Then the Buddha addressed Ananda, Go, Ananda, bring water, we will bathe this monk. The Buddha sprinkled on the water, and Ananda washed him over. The Buddha took him by the head, Ananda by the feet, and having raised him up, they laid him down on a couch. Then the Buddha had the monks convened and said, why are you not attending to your sick brother, monks? And they said, This monk is of no use to the community, therefore we do not tend to him. And the Buddha said, Monks, you have no father. You have not a mother who might tend to you. If you do not tend to each other, then who is there who will tend to you? Whoever monks would tend to me, he should tend to the sick. This is a passage that um, has struck me very deeply. In some ways, because it's the only passage I've ever found in the whole of Buddhist canonical literature that has the same uh, resonance and the same uh, specificity and concreteness and realness to one of the gospel passages that has always struck me very much. And that is Matthew 25, where Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in, naked 
and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Because the disciples were saying, you know, and then they say, well, we never uh, met you in these situations. And Jesus says, well, actually, each time you attended to these suffering people, you were attending to me. Now, the Buddhist passage is arguably about 400 years earlier. But it makes exactly the same point. And here we have the Buddha identifying himself with the suffering and the sick and the weak. This last phrase, whoever would tend to me would tend to the sick, I think is very much a recognition that if you are concerned with uh, awakening, with being Buddha-like, then you will attend to those who suffer. Of course, in Mahayana Buddhism, which comes along quite some time later, we do have this great emphasis on compassion, on the bodhicitta, but it's all rather universal and, and abstract in a way. I will attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. But rarely do you get a particular sentient being being addressed. Here we actually have a very moving story where the Buddha gets his hands dirty. He attends to a particular person. And then he identifies himself with that person who is sick. This, I think, mirrors, in a way, the um, legend of the young man going outside the palace walls, encountering a sick person, an old person, and a corpse. And on, in those encounters, waking up to the reality of his own frailty, his own weakness, his own mortality. And that is what sends him on this quest to find some authentic response to these existential questions. And as I mentioned already, the awakening or enlightenment is something that I don't think we can really understand independently of its being a response to the suffering of life. In other words, at some level, the two are indistinguishable. If there's no birth, sickness, aging, and death, there is no awakening. The two are very much going hand in hand. And here we find, I think, a very, uh, a very uh, concrete affirmation of that same point. Now, what is perhaps slightly striking about this passage is that it shows that, you know, even at the Buddha's time, the monks could behave in really rather selfish ways. Perhaps it strikes some of you as not even being quite credible that the monks would be so cold and callous. And perhaps for the sake of making that, doc that, that point, 
it may be slightly exaggerated. But I think it is perhaps worth reflecting on how we, or how I, find myself when confronted with sickness and aging in particular. How do our minds react to that? How quickly, if a friend of ours or a relative, uh, someone is, you know, perhaps been very sick for a very long time, how quickly our patience wears thin. How we may feel a sort of conflict within ourselves between what we feel we should be doing, going to visit them, ringing them up, and yet very often we either forget or we do so with a certain, we do so begrudgingly. And although we may not say this person is no use anymore, I think in some ways that often is how we feel deep down. This person really isn't an active part of our community, of our circle of friends. It's taking up a lot of time. It's a bit of a hassle. I'm particularly aware of this at the moment um, with my mother, who's 98. She's got very poor short-term memory. She can't walk. She can't see properly. She is very lonely. All her friends, all her relatives, apart from her two sons, have died. She gets very few visits. And even when she does get visits, within an hour or so, she's forgotten that she had them. I'll ring her up and say, well, she'll say, nobody comes to visit me. But mum, I was with you yesterday. No, you weren't. You know, it's, it's actually a very, if you try to imagine being in that situation, it's a situation of enormous loneliness that in some respects is as much to do, do with the loss of memory as it is with what actually is going on. And I'm aware in the residential home where she lives that most of the people there are left entirely alone uh, for, for days and weeks and months on end. We think and we justify ourselves by reasoning such as, well, we provide wonderful care for our elderly parents, which is true. Physically, they're well taken care of. But I also feel that that is often a way of easing our own conscience and allows us, in a sense, to forget them. And again, it's because, in a sense, they've no, they're no longer an active part of our lives. They don't contribute to our lives in the way they may have done once. So this story illustrates, I think, um, not just an event that may or may not have taken place during the Buddha's lifetime, but it illustrates, I think, something quite, um, quite real and true about our human tendency to disregard and to ignore the sick and the old. And so we have these monks who perhaps are very good monks doing all their meditations properly and so on. 
But at some level, they've become identified with their position as monks, their identity as renunciants, their career as people seeking to attain enlightenment, perhaps very sincerely. But at one level, they seem to have lost the plot. They've lost touch with the very ground of their own potential for awakening. And they've lost touch with that because they, at least as is shown in this story, they've lost the ability to empathize with those who are suffering in their very midst. It almost seems that those who have the, the most intimate and perhaps the most painful experience of dukkha, the sick and the aging, are in a sense the Buddhas in our midst. While the rest of us are spending a lot of our time preoccupied with our sense of ego, our sense of place, our sense of position and so forth. We cut off. So the Buddha's injunction, those who would tend to me would tend to the sick, is, I think, a very uh, important reminder that what this way of life, what awakening is about, starts with our ability to be open to and to embrace those who are actually suffering. Specific people, or maybe animals, or as we might extend this now also to the planet itself. This is where awakening has its roots. Now this is all uh, a kind of way in to a passage I want to, to comment upon this morning, which concerns the, um, which concerns an account that uh, Mr. Gautama gives of his awakening in a sutta which is called uh, The Noble Quest. It's the 26th discourse in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, 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 the middle-length discourses. A recent scholarly uh, study of this text argues for a number of technical and philological reasons that, these, that the passages found here probably do go back to a very early period, that they're unlikely to have been added on later. So I think this is the sort of text um, that we can perhaps give more rather than less credibility to as representing the Buddha's thought. It's an unusual text because the Buddha talks about himself. He tells his own story, albeit in a very sparse outline, but he describes his leaving home, how his parents wept with tearful faces, as he embarked from his home life. He talks of how he underwent um, training with two teachers who taught him the deep uh, jhanas or, or, or deep meditation states and found that these did not resolve 
his primary questions. And then, with really no transition, he talks about his awakening. And then he offers a, a paragraph, which I'm going to read out, as to what that awakening consisted of. This is the text. This Dhamma I have reached, he says, is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. The this conditionality. Conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground. The stilling of inclinations. The relinquishing of bases the fading away of craving, <coughs> desirelessness, stopping or ceasing, nibbana. This passage um, is one I've, I've thought about a lot. I've, this is my own translation. The translations you'll find elsewhere don't quite read like this. But what it shows... I think rather vividly, is that his awakening is uh, essentially a, a radical shift in perspective. It's not a breakthrough to some higher truth, some mystical insight into the nature of ultimate reality, for example. And in fact, there's not a single word in this passage that has its root in the Sanskrit Pali, nya, to know. There's no sense of knowing anything. And there's certainly no mention of a word like truth. Instead, the very core of this passage is about a shift of perspective from where one is preoccupied with one's place to an opening to what he calls one's ground, one's tannang. Now, in some ways, uh, this is uh, involving word play because the words he uses, alaya and tannang, are to some extent synonymous. Alaya, you, some of you might be familiar with it from later Buddhist philosophy, where you have the Alaya Vijnana, the foundation consciousness. And we're all familiar with that word from the mountains in North India, which are called the Himalayas, or the Him-Alaya, the basis of snow, is what it means. Him, snow, Alaya, foundation, bla place, so the two words are much the same and the word tanna 
we find also in the Upanishads in the form of like Adishtana, which means foundation, and it refers to God. It refers to Brahman. And what the Buddha's doing here, therefore, is not only playing with these two words, he's also um, challenging uh, the traditions of his day as to what one's ground really is. The ground for the Buddha is not some transcendental reality called God, but it's actually the contingent, conditional world itself. And also the capacity we have as human beings to enter into a relationship with it from an experience in which our habitual reactive patterns have ceased. It's also worth pointing out in the light of what we looked at yesterday that what the Buddha calls the ground, tanna, is on the one hand conditioned arising and the other ground is the ceasing of craving. And so once again we, we come to this primal rhythm or pulse of the Dhamma which is whatever arises ceases. The same core ideas are found there once again. Now what does it mean to love, to delight and to revel in one's place? We all have many places. In other words, many um, identities almost. Places with which we identify. In my case, I am a, a white European male born in Scotland living in France, in the Bordeaux region of France, who works as a teacher and as a writer, who has certain political affiliations, sort of liberal green, who considers himself a Buddhist, albeit a secular Buddhist. And perhaps underpinning all of that, spends a lot of his time preoccupied about the story of Stephen. Me. That's the place I keep coming back to and keep editing, censoring, refining, embellishing. <laughs> and although I may not spend you know, 24 hours a day delighting, reveling in my place... I do find myself spending a lot of time in these places. Again, when we get to know another person, let's say socially, what do we do? We basically trade information about our places. Where were you born? What do you do? Are you, you know, what do you believe? How do you vote? And all of these are things that are unavoidable in human life. We can't live in this world without having certain places and positions. The problem is not uh, the fact that we have such identities. The problem lies in our attachment, our delight, our preoccupation, our indulgence 
in these identities. Even Mr. Gautama, he never, would never have ceased to be a nobleman from the town of Kapalavatu, of the Sakyan clan, a subject of the king of Kursala, the husband of Badakachana, the father of Rahula, and so on. These were things that are not changeable. That's our life. The problem with delighting and reveling in that, in identifying with it, is that it basically prevents us from seeing our ground. As he says... It is hard for those who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. We enjoy, or let's say we feel comfortable and secure in our place because it seems to offer us a kind of safety, or to use the Buddhist term, a refuge from the rather overwhelming reality of our birth and death. So the story with a sick monk is really, I think, an extension of this same idea that the monks were more were so involved in their identification with their position and their place and their role that they failed to see their ground. They'd lost touch with that, even though they were Buddhist monks. In some respects, I think uh, this obsession we have with our place is a strategy to avoid facing up to the reality of our lives. The fact that we've been born, the fact that we're subject to breakdown, the fact that we're mortal and will die. Again, it's easy to, to read a Buddhist text about this, to hear teachings on this, to meditate on these things. But very quickly, we, we shy away from that encounter. And I feel a great deal of the practice of meditation, the practice of mindfulness, is about constantly returning to our ground. Worth bearing in mind also, the, the term the Buddha uses for this is sati patana. Tana is the same word as ground. Usually they're called the four foundations of mindfulness. But actually the Pali, and certainly the Sanskrit and the Tibetan, that should be a verb. It's the establishing of attention. But if we translate it according to the literal meaning of tanna, we could say it's the grounding of attention. What we're doing when we sit and when we walk, when we try to be with the breath and the body and the impermanence and the change and the dukkha of our experience, the anatta that Temple mentioned last night, we are in fact grounding ourselves in our ground. And what's interesting is to notice what kind of reaction that so often provokes. Rather than grounding ourselves in our ground, we find ourselves fleeing back 
to our place. In other words, the story of me and all the things I've got to do and my identity and my friends and my position in the world and my responsibilities and my duties, all of which are quite legitimate things to do, but not when you're trying to ground yourself in your ground. So we notice very, very explicitly in the practice of mindfulness how we, um, uh, are in a sense, very much conditioned and programmed by possibly our biology, by our culture, by our society, to, um, to, to, to go back to and dwell in the security or the supposed security of the place we've established for ourselves in the world. It's actually very difficult to be with this ground because this ground is paradoxically groundless. And this is, I think, what is striking about how the Buddha describes it. He describes it as Ida pachayata paticha samupada. This conditionality, in other words, it's, a, it's an experience that's conditioned by specific events. Bhikkhu Bodhi translates this as specific conditionality. And I think the word specific, idam in, in Pali, this, we're not talking abstractly about dependent origination. We're talking about how our specific experiences generate effects. And those effects become specific conditions for further effects. It's turning the attention of our minds to the specific conditionality of our lives. It's not an abstract idea. It's something we can sense, something we can feel, something we can ground our attention in. And what we find is something that is constantly slipping away, constantly mutating and changing, morphing into something else, which in turn changes, slips away, morphs into yet something else. And we begin to realize that there's nothing within such a fluid and contingent experience that we can ultimately rely upon for the kind of eternal happiness and well-being that we seek. The world is utterly undependable. In the end, it will inevitably let us down at death. It's also something which is not intrinsically me or mine. Me and mine are, is the language of our place. So these three characteristics... And impermanence, dukkha, anatta are the characteristics of our ground. And this ground is fluid. Why is it then called a ground when it's so unground like? What it's pointing to is that this, the, 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 the practice that the Buddha's um, offering us 
is actually a practice that enables us to find our feet in this groundless ground. Again, we can. I mean, he, he sometimes describes this also as entering a stream. And a stream, of course, is also not terribly ground-like. But that doesn't mean that fish, water boatmen, insects, and other aquatic creatures cannot live within it. In other words, we're being challenged to open ourselves to this ground and learn to live our lives from that perspective, learn to swim or dance with these currents, learn to feel in a sense at home in this homeless state. Another metaphor that we often find in the, in the text is the idea of going forth from home to homelessness, which is usually nowadays a synonym for becoming a monk or a nun. But what it means really is our um, letting go of a certain fixed place and allowing ourselves to embrace the homeless condition of, of all humankind. Again, a passage from the Gospels jumps into my head. The Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. It's the same idea, I think. So this ground, um, in some ways, is an opening to what we might call the sublime. Something that is overwhelming and somewhat terrifying. But at the same time, when we really find ourselves and ground ourselves in it, it opens up the world as a place of sublimity, of beauty, of awe, of wonder, that is both deeply fascinating and engaging and enriching, but at the same time, scary. So we need, in a way, the uh, training to, to, to stabilize and, and focus and ground our attention so that we're able to have that inner strength to really live more and more from this perspective. But there are two grounds here. There's the ground of conditioned arising, which is something we'll come back to tomorrow as well. But it's also the ground of ceasing, uh, niroda, of stopping. It's a, it's a double ground. And the, the ground of, 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 of stopping is something that, again, we uh, work towards in the practice of paying careful attention to what's going on. That as we embrace this ground, in a way we go against the, uh, the strategies, the habits of grasping on or craving this and that, or craving to get rid of that or this. And in such a way that the strategy or the patterns of grasping begin to fall away until we reach moments at which they have stopped. And this is called the cessation of craving. But the problem is, 
cessation suggests something rather final and in some sense is something rather impossible. Because craving, grasping, we would now understand not to be just a habit of the mind, but a deeply embedded survival mechanism within our own biology. In the discourses where we find the Buddha engaging with the character of Mara, the demonic, we have to recall that most of these discourses take place after the awakening, not before. Even though Buddhism talks of the awakening as the the conquest of Mara, Mara is still around, hanging out and bothering the Buddha right up until the very end. And this to me points out that Mara is part of our condition. Craving is part of our condition. It's part of our, our biology. It's part of our, maybe part of our reptilian brain. So it's not a question of trying to delete these things, which is probably impossible. But it's a question of coming to relate to them in a way that they no longer have power over us even if they arise. There's a passage in the Diga Nikaya where the Buddha says, whenever a person grasps, Mara stands beside them. And there's a lovely passage in the Suttanipata where the Buddha uh, describes Mara um, or describes the overcoming of Mara not as the destruction or the getting rid of Mara, but by finding a way of being where Mara no longer has anywhere to uh, hold on to. This is sometimes called emptiness. A place where Mara is no longer able to attach him itself to us. And so one is free from these things even though they keep arising. One hopes that over time, because you don't feed those habits, they die down and become less and less um, intrusive in your life. But I suspect that even for the Buddha, the maric condition kept arising. It's a way of, in a way, talking of his conflicted humanity. It humanizes the Buddha to recognize that he too is constantly engaged with Mara. So the, the ceasing and the stopping, which is sometimes idealized as a kind of perfect state, in fact the texts say that the, these uh, craving is cut off like a palm stump, never to occur again. Nowadays that sounds like having a lobotomy, <laughs> cutting off something within our own brains. <clears throat> So we have this twofold ground, uh, the ground of the shifting, moving, impermanent dukkha, anatta world itself, conditioned arising. And we also have a ground in which we are able to be with this world in a way that we're no longer driven and conditioned by the habits to grasp, to reject, to fear, to hate. And that's called Nibbana. 
the, the, the stilling of inclinations, the stilling of those patterns of habit, desire and fear and so on, and the uh, openness that then ensues from this still, quiet space within us. Again, I think Buddhism as a religion has somehow ratcheted this experience up to a high level of attainment. But I feel at some level, um, this experience is something we've all touched upon in our practice. It may not be as, as profound or as deep or as lasting as um, others might have experienced, but we sense the possibility at least on a retreat, let's say, where we do find moments of deep stillness and peace and quiet in which we can be totally present with whatever is going on. And that, I feel, is a kind of a glimpse of Nibbana, a glimpse of a stopping. I don't think it's too remarkable. And again, check it out for yourselves that when the mind quietens down, when you're open to what's occurring, you're not, at those moments, driven by greed or hatred or deep egotistic confusion. You have, as it were, touched the nibbanic uh, ground within yourselves. But the Buddha's a good enough psychologist to recognize that... Um, no matter how deep your experience of this, it won't last. That the old habits will come rushing back. We're going to talk about this more uh, tomorrow, so I'm not going to, um, to go into this now. At the conclusion of this passage, which I didn't read, we find the Buddha's first reaction to what had happened. He says, were I to teach this Dhamma, others would not understand me. And that would be tiring and vexing for me. In other words, he recognizes that what he's sort of woken up to is something that's quite unfamiliar, both for him as a human person, but also, I think, for much of what was culturally and religiously normative at his time. He says people who are dyed by attachment, dyed in the sense of dyeing cloth, dyed with attachment, covered by darkness, will not see what goes against the stream, subtle, deep, hard to see and fine. Here we get this famous expression. And it's the only time in the canon that it occurs, actually. It's, in, it's right here. Goes against the stream. What he's woken up to goes against the stream of our own conditioning as human creatures. And it also goes against the stream of what is regarded as... Um, the way to realize truth, liberation, that would have been the case in the Jain and in the Brahmanic traditions of the day. 
in some ways, he recognizes that what he's woken up to is counterintuitive. It's maybe not what he expected. It's something that really goes against the currents of thinking, of behaving, of, 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 of uh, the culture of the time. All of those things. It's going in the opposite direction. And I think this is probably equally true today. Whereas I feel the tendency within religion is to posit um, the existence of some some ultimate truth, some transcendent reality, the unconditioned, the deathless in Buddhism, or emptiness, or Buddha nature, and enlightenment is about somehow realizing and knowing and understanding these things with deep personal experience. Things which, according to this text, are actually um, not of the conditioned, changing, fluid world. The Buddha's awakening is an awakening to this world, to this experience, uh, to this condition we are in, freeing ourselves from our attempts to deny and evade and uh, construct some refuge from it. So it's very much of the here and now, of our phenomenal or our empirical experience. On thinking this over, monks, he says, my mind inclined to inaction, not to teaching this Dhamma. And now the text goes off into a rather strange direction. He's sitting around under the Bodhi tree, presumably, and then suddenly, he, um, Brahma Sahampati appears to him. A god appears to him. It says, Brahma Sahampati appeared before me as swiftly as a strong man would flex his arm. I don't know if you've seen some of these Hindi movies, but you have the characters doing their thing in wherever it is, and then suddenly, kapow, Krishna appears or Vishnu appears. It's a bit like that. And Brahma Sahampati uh, then speaks to the Buddha and says, actually, there are people out there with little dust on their eyes. They don't understand what you're saying. Now, how do we make sense of this? I don't live in a world anymore where uh, gods appear and disappear and tell me what to do. And I doubt the Buddha did either. But nonetheless, this is the language of that thought world, of that culture, of that time. And it's mythic, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. I feel that the text shifts from what is actually a very sort of analytical, psychological account of this experience and suddenly switches gear into a mythic uh, storytelling. So to unpack this, I think we need to read it symbolically. You know, this is a way of talking that helps us understand what happens next in the Buddha's process of waking up. First of all, who is Brahma? 
In Hindu cosmology, mythology, Brahma is the creator of the world. Vishnu its preserver, Shiva its destroyer. Brahma appears quite a lot in the Buddhist uh, suttas, and particularly this particular Brahma, Brahma Sahampati, who's a kind of a subset of Brahma. Brahma, therefore, um, is the arising of, of creativity. The, the appearance of Brahma is the, cre- is the beginning of something that's going to be created, the creating of something the bringing of something into being. We might imagine that uh, the Buddha's insight was one that grounded him in this ground of ceasing to grasp and being totally open to the unfolding of, of life, really. But that, in a way, was inadequate. That was an experience doubtless a very profound one, but it somehow did not fulfill his, um, his, inter- his humanity. The appearance of Brahma is the awareness that he's not alone in this world, that he might be inclined to just rest in this state, but in some senses he has an obligation as a social being, to impart and to share and to embody this awakening by saying something, by doing something. So I think we might see this as that within him there arises now the beginnings of action. Remember that Brahma also in Buddhism, is a symbol for metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. I think the key two points at this instance are the arising of a loving concern for others and a compassion that seeks to address the suffering of the world. Uh, In Buddhist tradition, metta is understood as the wish for others to be happy, compassion, the wish that they be free of pain. The two go together in a sense. So again, we can understand Brahma here as uh, the arising, not just of a creative impulse to do something, but an impulse that's driven by love, and compassion. And thirdly, Brahma stands for what is called in Buddhist cosmology the Rupya Dhatu, the realm of form. In, in, in this cosmology, you have the realm of sensuality, Karma Dhatu, the realm of form, Rupya Dhatu, and the realm of formlessness, Arupya Dhatu. In a way, what's happening, I think, is that his initial experience is formless and that then, it then begins to assume form. And in the first instance, this form is, in a sense, archetypal, the image of a god, a deity, 
comes into view. But that archetypal image is, in a sense, a kind of medium, a midpoint between doing nothing and actually going out in the world and doing something. So what happens, according to this uh, account, is that the Buddha rises from his inactivity, inspired by Brahma, and goes off to seek some people he thinks might actually understand what he's discovered. And these are the five former companions in asceticism who he knows to be living at the Deer Park in Sanat, or Isipatana as it was called then. And so he sets off from Uruvela, from Bodhgaya, heads west, goes to the Ganges, crosses the Ganges, would have gone through the ancient city of Benares, and then about eight kilometers beyond the river is a deer park where these five men, one of whom was Kondanya, remember we looked at yesterday, the one who says, whatever arises is something that ceases. And it's there that he begins to teach. In other words, his awakening um, is described here as a process. As a process that starts deep within one's own intuitive understanding, gives rise to certain creative impulses and emotions and feelings, motivations, that leads to an actual utterance, words, deeds, in a specific place, at a particular time in history, within a specific social environment. And in that sense, the awakening reaches its, uh, its closure. It's interesting also to notice how that process is also inscribed in the structure of the Eightfold Path. You start with vision, that leads to thinking or intention, and that leads to speech and action. You find it also um, inscribed in the doctrine you find in Mahayana Buddhism of the three bodies of the Buddha, the Dharmakaya, the Sambhogakaya, the Nimanakaya, which I'm not going to go into now. But I think the great beauty of that doctrine is that it understands awakening not to be a state, a private state of enlightenment, but it understands awakening to be a process that moves from one's deepest interiority through imagery, thoughts, feelings, emotions, motives, into an actual embodiment in the world in which we live. And at that point, which is called Nirmanakaya, there is that completion. And I feel we need to think of this also in our own practice, that the goal of, of Buddhism, the goal of this uh, Dhamma, is not to achieve Nibbana. I think that's a mistake. Um, that's only the beginning. From that um, stopping of craving, one is liberated to respond to the world 
in a way that's no longer driven or conditioned by your identity with your place. But you have the possibility in such moments to respond to the world from your deepest ground, the ground of your life, in empathy with the suffering, with the ground of those with whom you live and interact. Tomorrow we'll look at the, um, the first sermon, the first discourse that the Buddha gives to these five ascetics. But that's all I'm going to say today. We now have um, walking meditation. Again, another way of grounding attention or awareness. And we'll come back here for a sit before lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.